Welcome to the Carecast. Well, hi, everyone, and a very warm welcome to another Carecast. And this time we're going to be talking about death and dying. And to do that, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by our regular panellist, Matt James. Matt, great to have you with us again. And I'm even more delighted, no offence, Matt, uh, to have Catherine Mannix joining us for the first time as well. Catherine, welcome to the Carecast. And, and Matt, it is genuinely good to see you. I, I do mean that from good the bottom. Good to see you, James, as well. Bottom of my heart. Good, good. Um, Matt, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about why we're choosing to do a podcast on death and dying, because there may be some who are listening or watching who might be thinking, why? Indeed, death and dying kind of triggers kind of rather morbid thoughts in our minds, don't we? But I think hopefully by the end of this podcast, uh, our listeners will realise and come to a fresh appreciation of the importance of why we need to be talking about it more and more. But we're obviously all aware of the COVID-19 pandemic and the various challenges that are kind of specific to that. But alongside that, alongside the impact of the pandemic, um, it's meant that GPs particularly have had to find themselves in a, a, a challenging place of identifying people in their care who uh, are unlikely to benefit or likely to be harmed further if they were being admitted to hospital. And they're being asked to, to discuss alternative options for care with these people, people at, at risk of serious crises in their long-term uh, conditions that they're living with, or who are unlikely to be helped by being placed on a ventilator for the, coronas, uh, for, for the coronavirus, uh, even if they reached a hospital, even if they were admitted. So in essence, these are all new questions, but once again, kind of old questions framed by new circumstances. How do we approach death and dying? Um, how do we best care for those who are in later life, uh, living with long-term conditions and faced with a heightened risk now of catching COVID-19? And so these are kind of really complex questions, but questions that need to be dealt with tenderly, sensitively, and understanding where different people are coming from in terms of their wants or their desires uh, and in terms of how they'd like to be cared for. And so in a, in a, in a sense, it kind of reinforces the importance of what, how do we approach death and dying and what do we understand by those terms. Catherine, just coming to you, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about uh, your background and interest in this whole subject of death and, and dying. Okay, thanks. And thanks for having me. So, um, I retired after 30 years working in palliative care as a doctor and I took early retirement because I realised that after 30 years of trying to make a difference, one family at a time, individual families as I met them were still as terrified and not understanding of what lay ahead. And I really think that actually this is a public health issue for us as a, as a nation. It's not a thing that we can solve one person at a time. So that's why it's lovely to come and talk to audiences like yours, where we're talking, you know, to people who probably are not thinking about their own death or the deaths of people close to them. But a bit of a spoiler, actually, everybody who's listening is going to die. Um, and that actually... What I've discovered is that being a little bit ready, being a little bit prepared, having our ideas in order and then sharpening those ideas up a bit as we get closer to dying so that we, you know, right now, I don't know what I'm likely to be dying of. But in the next couple of decades, whatever that is, will probably declare itself and then I can make my plans a little bit more, more firm. And so I uh, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do in this campaign. But it turns out that um, after doing a, 
a, a radio broadcast on Radio 4, which actually was just a piece of good luck. Uh, I got heard by a literary agent who said, you, to you told a nice story during that interview. Have you ever thought about writing a book? So I did write a book. It's called With the End in Mind. It's a book about dying. It's stories from a lifetime in practice. It's not a very likely subject for a bestseller, but it is a bestseller. And it's been translated now into, I've just got my 13th translation contract. This is the thing, it turns out when you scratch the surface, people want to know about. And just ordinary, telling it like it is, in very basic language, not a medical book, turns out to have been a really good thing. And I'm delighted and astonished at what's happened since then. You make the most amazing use of personal stories uh, in with the end in mind. And I just wondered how important are personal accounts, personal stories, first-hand testimonies, as it were, uh, when it comes to kind of demystifying the dying process? Because I've got to be honest with you, when I think about dying, I think of hospital beds, tubes, and, and so on. So I wonder if you could just comment on that, that how important are those stories? It's it's absolutely the essence, isn't it? If you move away from dying, just think about air travel, which none of us is allowed to do at the moment because of COVID. But if the only thing that you knew about air travel was what you read in the newspapers or what you see on films, you know, whether it's snakes on a plane or drunks on a plane or hijacks or you know, whatever, you would never get on a plane, would you, if all you knew was from those kind of second-hand stories of disasters. And the newspapers do report real disasters. Those disasters do happen. But what they don't report is that everybody else today got on a plane that took off roughly on time. Nobody had a fight in the aisles. They landed at the right destination, roughly the time they were expected, got off the plane, and, and that was it. Nobody tells those stories. So, Stories about dying are the same. We use dying as entertainment, so it soups up the process of dying and distorts it. Um, newspapers grab onto desperately difficult stories that are true stories. Those are things that have happened to people, but they are incredibly unusual. They are the, the plane crashes, if you like, that get reported. And what we need are the balancing of the stories, the real stories. And when I go and talk now about, I go, go to book events and, and talk and people come up at the end and they say to me over and over again, you know, that thing that you said, um, well, it was a bit like that for us. You know, when our mum was dying, it was, it was gentle and we were together and she seemed very relaxed and it all was, and they, they kind of put their hands over their face. So it seems strange to say this. It was rather lovely. It was, it was, sometimes I say it was beautiful. It was, um, it was not what we were expecting. But, they then say, we realised what we had was really unusual. We never tell anybody how lovely it was for us because, because anybody else might feel distressed by the awful experience of usual dying. And I have to say now, okay, what you saw was beautiful for you. I'm really glad. It also, you just described to me, normal dying. Please tell people what happened to you because it's your story that people need to know, not only the disaster stories. So, yeah, it's human testimony that makes the difference. 
Matt, you've uh, talked about this well-thumbed copy uh, of, of Catherine's book that you've got. What was it that struck you the most when you uh, read uh, When the End Comes for the first time? Well, um, in many respects, everything that Catherine has said, but what I will use as an illustration is I actually used part of this, part of the book, for, as a set reading on our MA programme at St Mary's and um, on our Ethical Issues at the End of Life module. And what I find um, striking every year, uh, the last couple of years that I, I've set uh, a certain section from the book, is among the medics, how they find it so liberating. And, and in, in another angle of, on what uh, Catherine is saying, the medics actually sees what we often find but it was just so liberating to actually read it that it almost validates what we what we've seen and what we've experienced of working with patients but also those that perhaps are quite emotionally struck by it so actually that's what I, i'd hoped for that that's this is what i was hoping to be as a, a doctor to see more of this but actually i haven't because we've kind of almost clinicalized if that's ever a word um and we've lost the human dimension which comes through in these in these chapters. So what I found from it was the power of testimony, but also the power of testimony for those that are actually engaged in this in terms of practical caring, the nurses, the doctors, the palliative care specialists, that actually say, we, know, we can see this, this is what we want to see, and this is what we do encounter. And it is almost validating the place of having this conversation. That's that's fantastic to hear. I'd, I've been really struck by what's happened to this book because the book was written very deliberately with conversations between people. My, you know, I've looked after the team I'm working with is looked after, and those people or their families. Um, because what I wanted to do was say to the reading public, because this isn't a medical book, this is a book for everybody. Um, oh, they would think I I could have a conversation like that with. You know, I know my GP well enough to have a conversation like that. I know that um, nurse specialist in Parkinson's disease or my cancer nurse or whatever well enough to have a conversation like that. So the conversations were included partly because it's easier to tell a story by showing how things happened rather than being a bit telly. (laughs) But also because it I hoped it would say to people, we, we, we just use ordinary language. These are just ordinary words. And by talking to each other and asking each other questions and thinking things through together, um, those conversations, they're the teamwork that make it possible to sculpt somebody's care around what really matters to them. Um, It didn't occur to me, and perhaps it should have done, that clinicians would pick up this book and do exactly the same thing, but from the other way around, say, oh, I could use that turn of phrase if I was talking to a patient. And I know myself that all those useful turns of phrase that are in the book, almost certainly I stole them from somebody else and, you know, modified them so they sounded like me and my way of speaking. Um, So now we've got schools of paramedic science, nursing schools, medical schools, recommending this as a textbook. I always want to apologise to people. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to write a textbook. But we're paralysed by not knowing what words to make come out of our mouths. And giving people templates, if you like, seems to have been a really useful thing to do. So that's great to hear that that's happening at St Mary's. Join us for Care Sessions, a series of online events helping you to effectively engage with and stand up for the issues that matter to you. 
join us in March for two live Q&A sessions. To find out more and to register, visit our website, care.org.uk forward slash events. Spread the word and see you soon. I'm very struck by, and, and this conversation just kind of brings into focus for me that Woody Allen quip. Do you remember the Woody Allen one where he said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And it does seem that that talking about death and dying is really difficult. Uh, Catherine, why do we find it so difficult to talk about death and dying? Because as you said already, it is going to come to each one of us. I think we worry about the other person in the conversation. I don't think that it's personal reluctance to discuss death. It can be. But usually it's a worry that if I start to talk to you about this, am I going to upset you? Or there's that kind of um, vocabulary policing that goes on. Um, So I, I can remember one of my colleagues and friends coming back to work after her dad had died and I bumped into her in a in a corridor um, and she was with another one of her colleagues and I just said oh it's good to see you back and I was re- I was so sorry to hear your dad died and she said yeah well, so you know mum's okay and we've had the funeral and moved off and later on that day I bumped into her colleague who'd been with her on the corridor who she, she said to me I can't believe you said the word died to, let's call it Avril. Now, Avril and I had a perfectly okay conversation, but there's the ideas police, the thought police, the language police, thinking I should have used a different expression. I should have said passed, passed away, you lost your dad. Um, And I feel passionately that as professionals, we should be using the language think absolutely bereaved people just have the right to use whatever language gets them through and sometimes the d words are just too difficult for them to say particularly in the early days so nobody gets the right to criticize a bereaved person who's just trying to find the words to express what's happened to them but when i'm talking to you about your death or about the imminent death of a person that you love we need to talk about dying and death and dead so that there's no mistaking what we're talking about and it isn't about the words I think it's about the compassion with which we use those words and you know I'm interested to to hear what what Matt thinks about this having having had those experiences and thinking through what what it's like to be in those conversations Sure. I think, again, I'm not necessarily coming from a medical background, my background more in bioethics and the public policy side of things, but I think there is something to be said for how the rate and pace of science and technology and what we're able to do and achieve and have been able to achieve through science and technology that leads us to think that kind of death is just another aspect of life that we can somehow master and take control of and therefore we don't want to talk about that because that surely must be something that we can overcome we can master it you know we've got these as some people have said these temples of technology in other words hospitals where they can do all this amazing stuff which they can but it must surely be we must surely in this day and age be able to somehow circumvent or get around death and dying so it's therefore something we don't really want to talk about because 
well, surely, surely, we don't want to think about it because surely there must be a way of curing and getting ourselves around that or circumventing it in some way. And so I think uh, James is quoting a Woody Allen there, I'm not afraid of death, I just, want to be, don't, just don't want to be there when it happens. It's almost a sense of, you know, I, I, that's precisely it, because there must surely be a way of getting ourselves around this and, and kind of overcoming it in this day and age where masters are of our technology and surely there must be a technology or something out there that allows us to get over it. And so we don't want to think about it. Mm, I think I think that's true. I also like that Woody Allen quote because um, I think it's, it speaks to how we feel about when we accept the inevitability of it and then think, but am I going to be on the brink of death, aware, terrified, gibbering, um, perhaps full of symptoms that are overwhelming me and damaging the people who have to live on without me by them seeing that struggle so the idea of somehow entering oblivion without being aware is is, it feels quite appealing to people and I think that the stories I've told in the book are to show that first of all there is a process of dying which I think perhaps in a minute would be useful for us to talk about but it does mean that people are usually not conscious at the point at which they die. They're not asleep. That's really important. Um, I've met people who've been told that they won't be awake at the moment that they die, so now they're terrified to go to sleep. They won't be asleep. They will be unconscious and they won't have noticed that happening to them. Um, But the stories talk about how people can start to think about how their symptoms will be managed, where they'll choose to be looked after. And we do get very hung up about where where somebody dies it it turns out it doesn't really matter where the bed is it's the people around the bed that matter and that's what's been so difficult about covid that those people haven't Mm. been able to be there um and so yeah i don't want to be there when it happens you uh, intellectually probably won't quite be there anymore by the moment that it happens and i've seen enough deaths now thousands of deaths (laughs) to be less and less afraid of what's going to happen at that point to me or to people who I love and more and more confident that this is something that we can manage that it's a human thing and then the other thing about it is that we have to demedicalize it like you were saying this it's become a medical event it's been escalated to the inner temple of the intensive care unit not just the temple of the hospital um and atul gawande in his book being mortal makes this fantastic plea for de-medicalizing de-escalating let's stop escalating interventions and let's start escalating care and compassion and companionship, those are the things that really matter at the end of life. Want to see more on CARE's work? Join us on YouTube for our live stream devotions, parliamentary updates, and in-depth discussions on our causes. Remember to subscribe for the latest video content direct to your devices. Get more from CARE. Just search CARE.org UK. What, what does death look like i mean how, how would you describe it as we try and demedicalize it demystify it uh, catherine you've in your uh, profession as a palliative care doctor you've just said you've seen thousands of deaths 
wonder if you could just speak speak to this for a few moments. Okay, so so the first thing to say is that you know most doctors, if they said they'd seen thousands of deaths, that would trigger a police investigation. So let, let me let me just qualify that a little bit. The way we work in palliative care, and the palliative care people perhaps listening now who are going, she's making it all about death. So palliative care is not about death and dying. That's the first thing. Palliative care is about symptom management whether that's physical symptoms or emotional symptoms, spiritual distress, family dynamics all over the place, whatever it is that requires to be calmed and soothed to enable you to live your best life despite being encroached upon by an incurable illness. So usually the best way to get rid of somebody's symptoms is to treat the illness that's causing the symptoms. And then if you can do that, you don't need palliative care experts. So we're bringing this expertise to a group of people who generally don't have a treatment that will relieve the illness to take away the symptoms. So we're taking away the symptoms by other means. And that population of people is therefore likely to feature a lot of people who are approaching the ends of their lives. And therefore, we look after a lot of people at the ends of their lives, but not because they're dying. So message one, you're not obliged to die if you see the palliative care team. We do have long-term survivors, and that's great. The way palliative care teams work is that a team will have a number of different professionals with complementary skills, um, and usually a majority of nurses. If they're lucky, they will have AHPs like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, access to social work. Uh, they usually know who their go-to chaplain is, who the pharmacist is, pharmacist is they can go to for advice, and most teams will have a doctor. But doctors are in short supply and are expensive, so usually they have a bit of a doctor. So a lot of us in palliative care will work um, part of a week in a hospital palliative care team and part of a week in a community palliative care team or half and half between a hospice and one of those things. Um, and I was very lucky because I was working in a very big hospital of working my whole time for the last 10 years entirely in hospital, which is a very exciting place to be changing the script about what happens at the end of people's lives. But I would be on call for one of the local hospices, and that's a, a very different way of caring. And so I wouldn't be sitting at the deathbeds of thousands of people, but I would be called to the deathbeds of people if they were not going through the process of dying in the way that was expected and anticipated and comfortable for them. So in the same way as people might give birth to a baby in the hospital and be intended entirely by the magnificent expertise of midwives, but if something goes off course, then an obstetrician will be called in. So we don't say obstetricians aren't experienced at being at births, they've been at lots of births, but they're often only at the more difficult births. And I would be at the deathbeds of people who are having the less comfortable time, but popping in and out of lots of other people as well. And so that team of people would be looking after a lot of patients and I would be the go-to doctor for all of them. So that's where the experience comes from. So I talked about uh, midwives and the process of pregnancy and birth is a really great parallel for what happens at the other end of life because these are both physical processes that human bodies do 
that have a kind of set sequence of things that happen and they happen in pretty much the same order in everybody and some bits of it take longer than others and some bits of it get a bit stuck on the way and everybody knows now the sequence of giving birth um, whether it's because they watch One Born Every Minute or they watch Call the Midwife everybody knows that you know the waters break, the pains start, the pains get stronger, the contractions get closer together, the baby starts to settle down into the pelvis, the mum feels a, a, an impulse to push, the midwife will check whether everything's ready for her to push or whether she has to not push yet. And because that's all going to happen in a hurry, and because the person it's happening to will be feeling a little bit overwhelmed by events at the point of birth, they rehearse for it beforehand. They have antenatal care that keeps mum as well as she can be, keeps an eye on how baby is developing and ensures that when they come to the day when the baby's being born, everybody knows what position the baby's in, where the placenta is, all, all of the things that are going to keep both of them safe during that process. So dying is a process that's got stages that we can describe. And I think that maybe our end-of-life care, whether it's palliative care experts or whether it's your local GP and community nurse, um, whether it's your hospital team, what we're doing is the kind of antenatal care. We're getting the symptoms well-managed. We're working out what are the sort of symptoms that are likely to trouble you on the way. So we've got a backup plan for those things. And now when your dying starts, the sequence of events will happen in pretty much this order. And I can describe to you in advance, and I do, I've had this conversation with thousands of people, this is what's likely to happen. This is what your family are likely to see as it's happening. So now you know that, you can start to plan where you think would be okay places for you to be while that's happening. So what's the process? Well, it seems to not really matter much what the illness is that we're dying of. Towards the very end of our lives, what seems to happen is that largely we are no longer able to generate energy. That energy dissipates because of what the illness is doing. And we don't really understand entirely why that happens. So if you're dying of heart failure or liver failure or cancer or a neurological disease, this is the pathway at the end. Tiredness, that lack of energy, translates into a need for more sleep. And having some sleep will rebuild your energy batteries for a little while. And that happens to us when we're not dying as well, when, just when we're seriously ill. So anybody who's had flu, you know, real proper flu, they know that they just can't get out of bed and then they fall asleep. And then when they wake up again, they've got enough energy to get to the kitchen and put the kettle on. But actually, it's just too much bother to put the tea bag in the cup. So you kind of run out of energy very quickly. And it's a very similar sequence. And we've all experienced it. And we know it isn't awful. So we're waxing and waning with our energy levels. And we're sleeping more. And we're awake less. And as time goes by, we're progressively sleeping more and more and awake less and less. And during that period of time, the next change happens and we don't notice it's happened. But the people looking after us notice. And our midwives, our district nurse, our GP, our palliative care team, are keeping an eye out for it. And it's this, that during those periods of being asleep, we will dip into a much deeper state of unconsciousness than just being asleep. doesn't matter. We don't feel it. We wake up and say we've had a nice sleep. But 
maybe there was a phone call came and we couldn't wake you up or it was medicine time and we couldn't wake you up. So now we know, even though you haven't noticed it, you can't reliably be woken up and maybe you've got an illness that causes you pain or nausea or itch or breathlessness and you're taking regular medications to stop those symptoms from troubling you. If we can't wake you up at medicine time, then when you do wake up, you will wake up with the symptoms having come back and we don't want that to happen. So that first change of dipping from just sleep to sleep into unconsciousness and then back out again is the time where we usually change how we give medicines so that we can be sure that people don't wake up with their symptoms having come back. And usually we use injections. Um, in parts of Europe, they turn to suppositories as their first line. But we're British. We don't like that kind of thing. We don't talk about bottoms. Um, so we use little syringe pumps. And as time goes by, giving those medicines just the same dose, just the dose that keeps the, the symptoms at bay, people gradually become more and more sleepy, more and more asleep. And sometimes as they're between sleeping and waking, they have times of being muddled. And it's important that families understand that this isn't um, some kind of uh, mental illness taking hold this is just a muddledness that the brain isn't quite orientating itself now to to complete awakeness and eventually the person is just asleep and then progressively more and more deeply unconscious all of the time so their experience is quite gentle provided their symptoms don't disturb them and wake them up what the family now will observe is the person who's unconscious. And when we're deeply unconscious, the only bit of our brain that's still working is the bit that manages our breathing. It's right down at the bottom of our brain in our brainstem. A respiratory centre just drives these automatic breathing cycles. And if you've ever seen anybody really, really drunk, so drunk that they've made themselves unconscious, you might have seen this where they breathe without noticing what position their throat is in so they might breathe and their vocal cords would be a little bit closed so they make noises and it's not that they're trying to communicate or that they're uncomfortable it's just that their vocal cords are a little bit closed as they breathe out through them but if you've never seen somebody die before and you hear them making a noise like that then you might think they were distressed. You might think they were struggling to speak. You might think they were struggling to breathe. So it's really important that your midwife has prepared the people around you that those noises might happen. And then the other thing that happens is that breathing moves between deep and shallow and fast and slow. So when it's in the shallow, slow phase, it looks like panting. And if you've never seen somebody dying before, you might think that they were breathless. You might think they were struggling to breathe. So again, having explained it all beforehand is really important. And it moves between these cycles, deep and slow, um, shallow and fast, and then alternating. And then there are pauses, and the pauses get longer. And at some point, there's a breath out that isn't followed by another breath in. And you only realise it was the last breath when there isn't another one. There's nothing special about it. It's so not like Hollywood, you wouldn't believe it. And all of us in palliative care certainly have had the experience of walking into a room where somebody who's dying we've been looking after and they're in bed and they've got their family around them and they're not breathing and nobody's noticed yet. 
because it's been so gentle that actually it wasn't what they were expecting. So helping families to know what to expect so they're not too frightened to be in the room with the person is really important. And going in and out of the room to draw families' attention to how the person is, is really important. Your mum looks really peaceful. She's been like this all night. Well, well done, you guys, because that's the other thing midwives do. They don't just look after the person in labour. They're helping the birth partner also to be relaxed and not terrified because I've been a birth partner and it is pretty terrifying because you feel so extra, so out, you know, so in the way. And I've been a death companion and it's exactly that same feeling of I'm not even quite sure what to do here, but I'll go and put the kettle on because that's a useful thing that I understand. Those rituals help. So we're describing a process from weariness through unconsciousness into breathing changes, into dying. That's just very, very gentle. Now, there's an important thing to say about the symptoms that people might get. If you've got an illness that's been very painful, for example, or an illness that's made you very breathless, um, if the symptoms aren't fully damped down, then they will start to rouse your brain. That pain message will come up from your body and rouse your brain, or that breathlessness message will rouse your brain. So we then start to see people coming back up out of their unconsciousness, and it's because they're distressed, and we don't want them to be distressed. So what we do is give them an extra small dose of whatever the medication is they're currently taking. And what we usually do is give them the equivalent of a tablet that they, we would have given. So a tablet would usually last for four hours or so. So that's about a sixth of the daily dose of whatever is in that syringe driver. So it's not a huge slug, but it's enough to take that discomfort away. And when the discomfort goes away, the brain drops back down into its deep unconsciousness, back to the stage of dying that the person was already at. Now, that might have been quite close to death before they got disturbed by their symptom. So what the family sees is that the person roused and then the doctor came in and gave them an injection of something. And then short time after that, the person died. And their misperception is that the injection killed the person. Whereas, in fact, the injection simply allowed them to settle back into the same stage of dying that they were already at. And it's really important we understand that because otherwise people are completely traumatised by what they've seen at deathbeds. I think if I could just jump in there, James, I think uh, when we've uh, talked about this on the MA programme, but also in other contexts too, to draw that analogy between, or the parallel between beginning of life and end of life, midwifery, that is such a powerful, and I think an illuminating uh, insight that I, I would, I often attribute to Catherine, I'm sure she picked it up from somewhere else as well, as well, the emerging body of work that's taking place in this area. But I think many students who just found that so illuminating yeah I, I can see this now as a process almost as a natural process as opposed to something being uh, something that would cause concern or worry but the, the big the, just that parallel it, it can be so helpful in, in just getting to grips and understanding this in a, in a clearer way mm-hmm. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, that's the end of part one of the Carecast with special guests Matt James and the author Catherine Mannix. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts from Care, then you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and you'll also find video content on our YouTube channel, Care.org UK. As ever, the best ways to connect with Care is to like our Facebook page, to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Twitter as well. Coming up in part two, there's more from Catherine and Matt as they continue to discuss death and dying and how we can face what's coming to each and every one of us. You've been listening to The Carecast. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care for what you believe.